The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, and welcome to Spectrumly Speaking. I am your co-host, Becca Laurie, and I'm joined here by Dr. Kate Cody. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist here in New York City, and I work with kids through adults on the spectrum as well as supervising graduate student trainees. So we have more supportive clinicians out there in the community. Um, so Becca, how was your week? My week was good. Um, it's kind of the the last push for me before I go on vacation, and I've somehow managed to um, also injure my foot in the process of needing to be very busy so that I can go on vacation with a clear head. So I've been sort of um, forced to pay attention to self-care, um, which is making for an odd combination of feeling lazy and like I maybe waited too long to take care of myself. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at. <laughs> so I'm like half working, half not doing what I can to keep the house together, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah, my week um, was like, it was busy with just like typical kinds of work and, and whatnot. But the, the highlight was that I got to see one of my favorite musicians perform on Saturday and I went to see John Mayer in concert. Oh my God, that must have been so much fun. It was so much fun. Live, um, live music is always the best. It's always so much better than listening to it alone in your car. It is. It was an interesting venue, though. It was an outdoor venue in New Jersey. I actually thought about kind of the sensory experiences while I was there mm. because the stage is positioned kind of under like almost just like an amphitheater, but it's more of just a roof. Mm -hmm. And then the sides are all open and there's seating there. And then behind the seats is lawn seating. Mm. And it was acoustically amazing because I was down in the seats and so underneath the covering. Um, but then it was also very hot. And then it was also it was just like a very it was a, it was an interesting sensory experience. And it's sort of one of my favorite places um, to see music, live music. It's over here by me on Long Island. It's at Jones Beach, their amphitheater. I love seeing it there mm -hmm. because of the sensory experience, because it's so, because it's open top, so I don't feel like I'm closed in or claustrophobic, and I can kind of smell and hear the water when I'm there. Um, and so it kind of adds to that sensory experience. But what you're talking about is so familiar to me. I mean, it's a choice that I think I have to make all the time. Like if I'm out with people and we, we're, um, I have to pick a table to sit at and then I have to pick a seat at the table that we're sitting at. You know, I have to be really mindful about am I sitting directly under the light? Am I sitting, you know, someplace where I won't get bumped and not, the things that kind of interrupt my um, social experience because of the sensory issues. So that is something that we have to think about a lot. I think those of us on the spectrum. So I'm glad that you had to think about it a little bit. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I'm usually aware, even if it's mm -hmm. not something that specifically you know, I need, I don't know. It's like just a part of what I process in mm -hmm. terms of information when I'm out for whatever reason. I think it's uh, part of the language that you use all the time. So it has to be, you know, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess we should be uh, moving on to our guest. Our guest today uh, is Elizabeth Wilkinson. 
and she's going to be joining us shortly. Elizabeth Wilkinson, a.k.a. Ellie, was diagnosed dyslexic in her early 30s and autistic in her late 30s. Over the last 17 years, her work to raise dyslexia awareness in her local area has grown, starting with her work with children on a one-to-one basis to now training trainers, teachers, and working one-to-one with adults in employment. She also founded Dyslexia Information Day in 2008 and the Dyslexia Awards in 2015. Both are exclusive to Shropshire, the county where she lives. She considers both diagnoses to have been positive points in her life, but her autism diagnosis and subsequent reading around the topic has had the most positive impact and now understands why she finds social situations totally exhausting, but the same situation on a work footing totally exhilarating and rewarding. Welcome, Ellie. Hello. Welcome to the Spectrumly Speaking. We always like to start um, asking people with kind of how they arrived at their diagnosis. So could you um, tell us a little bit about how you received both your dyslexia and autism diagnoses? Um, Yes, no problem. My dyslexia diagnosis, my mum had always um, flagged up through school that she thought I might be dyslexic. Um, But it wasn't until I was studying at university much later on in life um, for my teaching qualification. And finally, I I got diagnosed. Um, So it was university, really, which is quite often the case in the UK. So that was that was the the dyslexia diagnosis, the autism diagnosis. Um, My son, um, a friend of mine who's got an, an Aspie husband and two Aspie children, had taken me to one side and said, Al, I think your son might be autistic, Um, which gave me a big insight into how my parents of dyslexic children felt when it was pointed out to them about their children. That kind of gasp of, oh, my goodness, how could I have missed that? However, we went through the phase of trying to get him diagnosed before he became 18 um, as an adult, but we, we had some real poor um, help and and steps towards that which really turned him off towards going for that and just he turned around to me one day and said right that's it I'm not doing any of this you've got to go first which has always been the the case with my son he'll up until now he's 25 now so grown up and independent but prior to that he'd talked to me about things and, and want me to explain it so he was determined that there's no way he was going through a negative experience again and I had to go first <laughs> because mm-hmm. <laughs> we'd had the conversation that perhaps I probably was as well. So I basically went for a diagnosis so that I could explain to my son what he would have to go through mm-hmm. um, in order to go and get his diagnosis. So that was that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, why do you personally think uh, for you your diagnosis came so late? Um, from the reading I've done around Aspergirls, I suppose, is just that I've managed to pick... Um, the right people to emulate rather than mimic um, and parents who are probably autistic as well um, so it hasn't well probably a family of autistics I should think so it's it's never really been anything that's that's too off the wall or um, makes you stand out too much in in society because I can converse with people and get through in life but it was just I suppose later on in life with my son being diagnosed and things perhaps not quite being the way I thought they should be um that it then started to flag things up a lot I don't of know if that answers I don't know if that answers the question properly <laughs> no I think what you're talking about a lot is is what a lot of adults go through where they start to really question kind of their their own 
potential of being on the spectrum when their children are going through that. So I, yeah. I think that that, yeah, I think that's, I mean, I hear that a lot. Um, and yeah. I also end up diagnosing a lot of adults when they're coming in for that exact reason. Yeah. Well, prior to that, I'd been to the doctor and booked an appointment and just said, look, there's something not quite right. I don't seem to function properly or there's something you know and he'd he'd sent me out to the waiting room give, gave me a couple of questionnaires to do one of which was for OCD and one of which was for depression and he said to me I think you're depressed and I think you've got OCD so I came home and I googled OCD and chuckled because I'm not OCD <laughs> <laughs> yeah no so and that then kind of clarified that perhaps it was down the the um the autism route because we'd always wondered whether there was dyspraxia but actually there wasn't enough issues with dyspraxia for it to be anything so yeah Mm -hmm. well and I think you're talking a lot about kind of just like the diagnostic jumble that can happen for adults on the spectrum especially for women um because there's you know just that varying presentation yeah a lot of our guests that are on the spectrum lead groups and consult and put themselves in kind of public uh, positions for the sake of advocacy, despite experiencing social challenges. Can you talk a little bit about if you have any discomfort in your role um, as a dyslexia consultant related to social issues? Um, it, it's interesting because I was at a friend's 40th birthday party uh, a couple of weeks ago and I really struggled. I mean, I wanted to be there for her because she's lovely and I was really um, honoured to be invited. And I really struggled after the meal was over and between that and the music starting. In, and I, I found myself doing what I see my uncle do, which was looking at my watch, what I hope was discreetly thinking, at what point can I leave and it not be rude? because I just didn't know what to do. And I've known these people for a long time. It's not like I'm uncomfortable in their company. But at that point, I suddenly realised that when it is a social situation, I'm really not comfortable and I don't know what to do. But that's what makes work situations so comfortable. Because if I'm in a situation for work, whether it be award ceremonies or networking, I'm there for a purpose, I have a reason and outcome. And whether it be advocacy for what I'm doing or spreading the word about dyslexia or the awards, there's a reason for it. And that allows me to open up conversations with people and actually listen to what other people have got to say. And that makes it easier because we're all there for a specific reason or specific reason. Whereas when it's social, I don't know what's expected of me. (laughs) Mm. that sounds totally familiar <laughs> to yeah. me yeah you know it's always that like oh was I supposed to put something in there in that blank spot there or I yeah. don't know was I supposed yeah. to be reacting in some way to that but the minute I start talking about autism I could yes. be talking to people about it forever <laughs> it's fine yeah. I could talk about it all day long <laughs> so yeah yeah it's definitely you know I always say you know people want to know how, how you become an expert and I always say well as an autistic it just has to become your special interest and yes that's yeah. sort of what happened to me so interesting you say that when 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 we'd been when I'd been diagnosed and of course my mum had to come with me to to see the psychiatrist to talk through my childhood and stuff and at the end when he said yes he was was after the third visit and my mum had turned to him and said what does that mean for my daughter I mean you know I'm a grown woman by this point but she's still as a mother would be concerned what it means Mm -hmm. for for my future and he just smiled at her and said "Um, Sue 
please don't worry. Dyslexia is her specific interest. It's her specialist chosen subject. <laughs> she can make a living from that. Unlike a young man who I diagnosed recently who keeps getting arrested for climbing up lampposts to check off the numbers on the light bulbs because mm-hmm. his obsession is that. And he was saying to her, trying to explain to mum that that's an obsession, whereas what I've got is is a bit of an obsession but also a specialist interest (laughs) so yeah she was very relieved with that explanation (laughs) yeah absolutely can you talk a little bit for us about the how common the co-occurrence of autism and dyslexia are from your perspective from my perspective I think quite quite high I'm I'm I always feel quite rotten for the fact that when I was started teaching and delivering dyslexia awareness, um, I was only aware of my dyslexia back then. Um, So a lot of the the teachers that came through will have observed my mannerisms and behaviour and may well have have misconstrued any children in the classroom as as dyslexic if maybe they were autistic. Whereas later on, um, when I got my autism diagnosis, people, I I would task teachers to try and see the difference between the two you know which bits of what I did were autistic which bits were dyslexic and and I'm hoping well I've I've had people contact me and say thank you because actually seeing a live one in the flesh which always makes me sound like a zoo animal Mm -hmm. but um, (laughs) helped them (laughs) distinguish people in the classroom which of course as you know you're quite happy to do because it it furthers the cause and and helps people so what I've in my work with adults in particular I've noticed quite a co-occurrence with the the people I've worked with just usually it's people that I click with straight away and you kind of sit there going at what point can I suggest maybe there might be autism in the family (laughs) (laughs) how do in terms of like the support that's available for individuals with dyslexia versus individuals on the spectrum um, in the UK, is there a difference between kind of like the public awareness and kind of degree of support that's available or is it, is it pretty comparable? I'd say it's pretty poor on both. Mm. Um, There's a real lack of awareness of what, what both mean. Um, People still, when I say dyslexia, assume children. Um, which is just crazy. It's like, hello, dyslexic children go into dyslexic adults, the same with autism. And when you say autism, most people assume you mean um, high, um, not high functioning, like Rain Man. You know, they've seen the film. That's what they think autism means. Um, yeah, trying to trying to get people to understand that actually skills on both sides uh, just are there. But, and, and, and as for support, when I was diagnosed with the autism, um, the, the the psychiatrist has said to me, oh, you know, there's no support at all for adults. I mean, funding was getting cut just then. In fact, we, my son and I were one of the last ones through to be diagnosed um, because they were cutting funding. Mm. So it's just, I mean, there are organisations out there that do things, but there's nothing, nothing that I haven't come across things that, that should be there to help um and can you talk a little bit more kind of about what you know your kind of grassroots efforts that of what you've put out there to kind of support the community yeah oh actually just going back to that last question yeah i say there's nothing out there there is but it's usually funded by somebody or or started by somebody like me who's doing it for a reason so Mm -hmm. there's a lovely lady called sarah heath and her son eric started um, autonomy shropshire and it was actually down to sarah that i got i met her at one morning at networking and she got me on my diagnosis she does a lot for for, um she does social groups for 
um, autism, people with autism and a women's autism group. And she does lots, but she's not funded by the government or anything. So it's not like it's it's everybody's right to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> OK, so um, what was your question? My apologies. Oh, no, I was I was just asking kind of about what, you know, the efforts that you've made to really. Um, implement supports in the community and kind of if you could give us a little bit more information about the work that you're doing um well it's interesting the work I'm doing I've been doing this for 17 years now and I finally um have have made the decision that I'm going to wind my business down still run the information days and the dyslexia awards um and go for full-time employment because I can (laughs) now my son is grown up and I'm not needed to drop everything at that moment's notice to go into school or college and sort things out and and if ever he hears this interview he'll be mortified um (laughs) but he knows we've had a family conversation and it's time for me to resume my career however the specialist interest bit being the information day and the awards about championing people's rights and making people feel good and and my my biggest goal locally is to have local role models um I worked with a bunch of teenagers about 15 years ago, I think now. And, and one of the youngsters was rolling his eyes to the ceiling when somebody mentioned Richard Branson as a, as a role model. Mm. And I just looked at him and said, well, you know, what's that about? Why are you? Why? What's the, the attitude? And he went, well, I'm, well, he wasn't quite so polite, but he said, I'm doing terrible at school. And now you expect me to be a multi-billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> so in that moment, I realized actually it's, it's good to have local role models. You know, we, those of us that have parents that have achieved well and, and got their careers, we look up to them as somebody to, to achieve or be like. Um, so my goal has always been to have local role models. So we've got Luke the Fireman from up the road, Lindy, um, Lindy Smith Cakes, who won one of the awards last year. She's an amazing cake maker and artist. And you know, people, until they check out her stuff, they kind of go, yeah, yeah, cake maker. But you see her stuff and you realise why she's somebody to aspire to be like. Mm-hmm. So it's just having achievable, um, not that it isn't achievable to be a multimillionaire if that's what you want to be. But, you know, most people don't want to be a multimillionaire. They just want to do something that makes them happy. Right. So, yeah. So I kind of I'm very, very passionate about having lots of positive examples. The Dyslexia Information Day that we that I founded in um, 2008 is all about having um, local businesses there as well as providers of information and support and just having on offer things that are available to people, whether it be they've got to save up for five years to get the stuff when their children get to a certain age, whether it be adults coming in and finding out they can get support by the government for access to work just advocating people's rights really well and it sounds like also helping people to kind of build on their strengths and and establish goals around their strengths yeah we had um we the information day is always such a lovely day because i've got fabulous volunteers it's an army of volunteers that just come and pitch up and do their bit and my mum used to be the chief meter and greeter and we had she said they had one family come through the door the one year and um the dad came in kind of crestfallen head down all ashamed that it, the kids had got dyslexia from him and and the wife was just you know saying that it was all his fault that they got dyslexia and mm. so they my mum being my mum <laughs> just said to the wife are you dyslexic she said no her mum just patted her on the arm tilted her head to the side and said don't worry we'll look after you while you're in here <laughs> <laughs> when they left the dad left with his head held high and gave my mum the thumbs up and said, yes, it's me they've got it from. 
Mm-hmm. So Aww. that's kind of what we do. Yeah, yeah. There's the, and it is lovely. And I, I understand why people want to volunteer for it because it's such a positive day and the feedback we get is lovely. Just wish I could do it every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have similar experiences when it comes yeah. to, to staying local in terms of autism. You know, some of my favorite days are, are you know, speaking with parents because they, yeah. they look at me and, and suddenly they can imagine their child as an adult. And yes. it's for many of them the first time that they've ever been able to do that. So that's brilliant. Um, being a part of that moment for people is really special to me. Um, that's lovely. So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, we're <laughs> actually going to wrap up the interview at this point. Um, okay. So uh, can you please tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your, your work and what you're doing and support you and what you're doing? So we're on um, on Twitter as um, Ellie the DDC, which is E L I. Because I've dyslexic parents, of course, it would be spelled differently. Um, the E L I T H E D D C. But you can also find us on Facebook for the dyslexic dyslexia consultant or dyslexia information day or dyslexia awards um the dyslexia awards and the information they are exclusive to shropshire but um always great to to hear what people think and, and get some feedback and if anybody knows anybody in shropshire who's dyslexic we would love to get them nominated for the awards so the the website is um www.thedc.org.uk so that's tango hotel echo delta delta charlie.org.uk Awesome. We just wanted to make a quick announcement that Spectrumly Speaking is going to begin coming out every two weeks. So be sure to subscribe to us to make sure you don't miss an episode. Now back to the show. We're going to go on to continue a little bit of the conversation uh, that we started to have with Ellie, which is we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, learning differences and uh, the spectrum and how that kind of shows itself in adulthood for women, for everybody. Um, so please join us if you'd like to, Ellie. We'd, we'd love to have yep. you. Lovely. So some some of this for me, you know, brings up that I have similar challenges, which I did not have a name for um, until I got my diagnosis, uh, which is called dyscalculia. So I have um, real big troubles with numbers, and it was something that uh, in school was a really big source of trouble for me because I was otherwise um, doing very well in school, but I really struggled in math, and I was always um, told I was lazy. It was because I was lazy. Um, And so I took a lot of self-esteem hits for that one. Um, But it was a great relief to kind of find out, you know, even though it was so many years later that, in fact, I was really doing the best that I could and, and pretty much, you know, trying to get by. Um, it was also a really great relief to know we had calculators and that was all a lie. We didn't have to use yeah. any of it. Um, but, you know, that it was yeah. definitely a struggle for me early on. Um, so I, I do I do understand, you know, when you have to make changes or do things differently so that you are still getting the same information and that you're processing it um, for yeah. your brain. Yeah. And Kate, how do you see it? You know, how do you do, do you find uh, people with unknown learning differences when they are first getting diagnosed? So I would say it's almost inevitable that to some degree there's some kind of a learning difference, which I don't mean a disability necessarily. I mean more that there's information processing differences just based on the profile of strengths and challenges that individuals um, on the spectrum tend to present with. 
Um, and so there's, you know, lots of data on this and that many individuals, um, on the spectrum tend to be highly visual in terms of their, um, way of processing. Even if you are a very verbal person, um, you can still really greatly benefit from visual, um, supports or multimodal approaches to learning, um, to really kind of meet that individual's learning needs. And I think that that's where, you know, understanding each person's strengths in terms of their cognitive profile and understanding kind of, um, how executive functioning impacts those, those strengths, all of that becomes really important. So whether you're talking about a diagnosable additional kind of learning label, versus just understanding learning differences. I think there's there's absolutely information processing differences that would impact how a person learns. And that's really important for um, kind of whether you're talking about school age or you're talking about how to advocate for what you need in a work environment. Um, you know, it's important to kind of have that understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know for me, um, I recently kind of discovered how very visual my own brain is. You know, I've I always felt comfortable in words. I always felt um, safe using words and language and writing and reading. And and that was sort of my comfort zone. So I never really imagined that I had a very visual brain. So I was sort of always, you know, struggled with that. Um, But I think when I'm communicating with myself and I'm needing to search for information or think, try to figure something out or figure out how to communicate it in words to somebody else. I am very much a visual processor. Um, I'm absolutely a visual learner. I think a lot of my math would have been a lot better if somebody was teaching me a little bit more visually, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how to get around, you know, how to understand the concepts because I didn't struggle with the concepts. I understood them. I just couldn't deal with the numbers. So I I was always like, you know, Nobody could get why I could understand physics and how physics works, but I just couldn't do the equations, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I know. And, and there just wasn't really a place for that, I guess, or a designation for that when I was growing up. That's yeah. such a shame, though, because there needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's really important to have those visuals or whatever somebody needs in order to learn. And it. Uh, sorry for pushing in. <laughs> no, you're not pushing. Please participate. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I mean, I just, that's the... I work with um, local fire service and I'm often teaching them about how to visualise things or how, not how to teach them how to visualise, how to utilise how they learn. And it's always such a revelation, as you've said, um, no matter what the age, it's that revelation of learning how you do things. Mm-hmm. And one chap was learning how to do the ladder drills. And I just suggested to him that he film somebody doing it or film himself doing it and then watch it back. And he came in the next week and he'd pass his ladder drills. It was great. Mm-hmm. But nobody had said to him, this is what you can do. <laughs> right. There are choices. Nobody said there's an option. There's Absolutely. Never, and, you know, yeah. Part and of it's the... not a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. And and that's yeah, sort of the, I think coping mechanisms have sort of gotten um, a bad rap in this yeah. whole <laughs> yes, autism, yeah. any kind of learning differences. We we um, we definitely need our coping mechanisms because you you have to function in a neurodiverse world. You don't function in you know a world of just your neurology. So you you sort of need them. And so we've you know, given the sort of negative take on, on coping mechanisms. And yeah. um, some people are actually angry when you when you tell them that they use them, <laughs> and, which <laughs> yeah. is strange, but they do. And um, 
but I think it's it's essential and it's just that we all need um, personalized coping mechanisms. Yeah. You know, you need one that works for you, not just any old coping mechanism. And I also think to recognise what they are as well, because like you were saying at the beginning about going to the open air music mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you were checking out where you were sitting, what you were doing, and actually the smell of the river made it OK. You could mm-hmm. That we all do. All of us, I think, that are neurodiverse, we do a, a certain amount of those things instinctively, automatically, without realising, mm-hmm. which is great. But I think sometimes when you realise that's what you're doing, it, you can actually be a little bit kinder to yourself because mm-hmm. you understand why you're doing it mm-hmm. so you maybe book your seat in the right place in the theatre or go to the outdoor open gig rather than the indoor one and things like that I, I think it can be quite empowering mm-hmm. to understand I, I always I think that the more choices people know that they have and and the more used to the fact that you do have choices you get um yeah the more comfortable life can get and so for me that means you know saving my energy for other things that might require more and just genuinely being able to participate in life more actively yeah because um, I have the energy <laughs> the extra energy suddenly <laughs> that I'm not wasting on doing other things um, that I don't have to anymore so yeah. and I think I'd... that's a useful tool for everybody by the way <laughs> Yes. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? All these things are useful for neurotypical and neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I find that um, one of the things that can be really challenging is kind of, Becca, you were saying, you know, there's so many choices. And I think a lot of times people really get stuck and kind of have a difficult time shifting into kind of flexible problem solving approaches. Mm-hmm. And they just think, oh, I can either go or not go. Or I can either do this or not do this and don't necessarily step back and say, what do I need to make doing this a reasonable option for me? Mm -hmm. And then can I access whatever it is that I need? Or is that an unreasonable accommodation for that Mm -hmm. particular activity or event? Um, And I think sometimes, you know, it can be really daunting to kind of be like, well, how do I modify this in a way that, helps me to access it and and I think the more you kind of know what your needs are the easier it becomes to know what to ask for exactly absolutely and and getting the skill set of of, um, recognizing your needs and then being able to express them that in a timely fashion because of course you know everything works at its own pace and so learning that stuff too is there stuff that I can pre-plan is there stuff that I can pre-set up for myself that won't you know, that will help me along the way. So things like picking, you know, buying your tickets and picking your seat ahead of time with all of your needs in place. Most of the time people kind of take that as a favor if you take that off their plate and make the reservations or, you know, you know, so it's sort of, it, it works out nice socially too, to be one of those people. Yeah, to be the organizer. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can relate to that. Yeah, that, I definitely. I am always the organizer, and people think it's so so nice of me, and I'm like, mm, it's really selfish of me, but okay, <laughs> you got it. It's nice of me. <laughs> See, that's using your skills to do advantage. Mm-hmm. Strength-based approach. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So that's that's sort of my take on on learning differences. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And I think um, if people stop and think about it a little bit, um, everybody thinks differently. So I don't think it's too much to ask to accommodate each other a little bit. So I think we'll wrap it up for today. Um, and 
we will once again tell everybody where they can find you, please, Ali. Um, I, on the internet, on Twitter and Facebook, the Dyslexic Dyslexia Consultant, although um, and that's going to be winding down, but just the Dyslexia Awards and Dyslexia Information Day. Well, be sure to check out differentbrains.org and check out their Twitter at DiffBrains and be sure to check them out on Facebook. If you are looking for me, you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn or at my website, www.beccalori.com. And I can be found via email at drcody at spectrumpsychservices.com or via website at uh, spectrumservicesnyc.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and don't hesitate to send questions to spectrumlyspeaking at gmail.com and let's keep the conversation going. Spectrumly Speaking is a production of Different Brains. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.